Welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. This episode, entitled God Part One, was given on September 16th, 2018, by Bethany Shea in the series From the Ashes. So, uh, turn with me to John chapter 3. Uh, We have started a new series last week. Our fall series will be looking at John 3.16 for a number of weeks. And I know it's just one verse. How can we spend 10 weeks or however many weeks on one verse? Well, you'll find out just from today. Because today we're just going to look at God. Yay! (laughs) Um, So last week we started our fall series. We were looking at the beginning of John chapter 3. There's a story of a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a religious leader and uh, and he seeks out Jesus because Nicodemus had a hunger for meaning and had a hunger for truth and he was curious if Jesus would actually be the one who could provide that sliver of relief because isn't that kind of the same kind of thing that we all experience we're all seeking out we are all hungry for truth we're all hungry for meaning it's like we're designed to explore our, our, our areas of faith, what it means to be human, what it means to have some sort of divine presence because we've felt it, we've, we've experienced it, and so we have that hunger to figure out what that means in our day-to-day lives. And I think that Nicodemus, like Nicodemus in a lot of ways, many of us were raised in a church setting. We were raised with a good religious, orthodox sort of religion. We've grown up following the rules. We've we've felt the weight of the religious uh, expression on our shoulders. And religion, for so many of us, has been so helpful. It It has given us this sense of direction of where we're meant to go with our lives. It, it's, it's been something that is helpful in our lives, but yet at the same breath, in the same way, we know that there's something more than simply tradition for tradition's sake, right? There, we know that there's something light and freeing about Jesus Christ. There's something easy about following Jesus that we, like Nicodemus, are just hungry for. And it's not like the easy, if you give your life to Jesus, everything's going to be easy in your life all of a sudden. Like, it's not that kind of ease. There's still going to be hardship. There's still going to be uncertain circumstances that come your way. There's still going to be storms in your life. But easy in the fact that our souls are connecting with how we're created to live. We're created for relationship with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said his yoke, which is like a burden, his his yoke is easy, his way is easy, his commands are easy compared to that old-time religion that was happening during that day. Jesus said his burden was light, and some of us are carrying around really heavy burdens right now, just in this room alone. And Jesus has that promise that says, my burden is not like the burden you're carrying around on your shoulders right now. And the reason that if you've come for a while to Catalyst, the reason why I seem to preach the same message week after week is because I keep being needing to hear it again and again. And maybe you do too. I need to recall who I am because of who God is. I need to be reminded that Christ's burden is light 
Not because of all the religious rules that I'm following, but because I get to remember my identity as fully loved and fully accepted by God in my forgiven and set free state because of what Jesus did for me and because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Okay, there's a really weird story in the Hebrew Bible, just to transition for a second. There's a lot of really weird stories in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. <laughs> if you go through it, you're like, well, this is really weird. Here's another weird one. There's a story of Moses, and he's wandering through the wilderness with the Israelites after he has helped them escape and being rescued by God from slavery in Egypt. And the Israelites are grumbling, and they are complaining, and they are so frustrated about being in their, cir- their, their circumstance that they're in right now. They're tired of eating the same thing day after day, and they don't know what tomorrow will bring, and that's frustrating for them. And so the Israelites are starting to cry out and complain to Moses, and eventually they start talking crap about Moses, but then they start talking terrible things about God. And the way that God responds in that moment is God allows all these poisonous snakes to enter their camp and start biting them, and people are dying. I know everybody who loves snakes, yeah, no one loves snakes. I love snakes. That's another sermon for another time. These poisonous snakes come in. They start biting the people. The people are dying, and the people start crying out to Moses, who then cries out to God, and God answers the cry of Moses by saying, grab a pole, make a snake, put the snake on the pole, stand over here, raise the pole up, and everybody who looks at this model snake will live. All right, on that, turn with me to John 3. It's all going to make sense here in a minute. John 3, right before our verse that we're going to be in, we're going to look at at 14. Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Moses lifted up this image of death to save people if they looked upon it. And when Jesus hung on the cross, everything that represented sin and death was placed on him. He bore our sins. He bore the pain of the world. He bore our complacency and our idolatry and our greed and our lust. And he bore our self-centeredness and our prejudice and racism and, and ignorance. He bore the brokenness and shame and all that separates us from ourselves and from each other and from God. He bore it all so that when we look at the cross, when we look at Christ, All of the sin and death that was placed upon him died with him, and we are born into a new way of being and living in the world. We are born anew, where eternal life begins immediately. And it's not religion, and it's not perfection, and it's not right right orthodoxy that brings us to the Father. It is the work of Jesus that invites us into this life that we've been created to live. A life that is marked by relationship with Jesus, where then right orthodoxy and right religion become some sort of a guide post, guide rails that help us stay within those boundaries. But it's not the religion we worship, it is Jesus that we worship. And then we get to enter into this new way of living that's marked by justice and compassion and mercy. 
And then through relationship with Jesus, we get to do the justice work of God that he put in place from the very beginning of time. If you look throughout the Old Testament, if you look throughout the the, the Hebrew Bible, you will read again and again of a God who desires justice and compassion and mercy. Again and again. Before we get into John 3.16, are there any thoughts so far? Anything that's coming up? Any questions or clarification? This is something that I have to preach to myself again and again, so thanks for listening in on my own sermon for my own self, because I, I love Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Haley. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm right there with you. Cool. Yeah, Brian. Something that we've been talking about, just exploring in prayer and thought, is uh, the relationship between that religion and trusting God, faith, and Jesus. How they live together, and how you almost can't have one without the other, but one is, I I don't know if one is more important than the other, or just kind of the whole thought around. Right. It was an interesting uh, thing to look into. Yeah, totally. You can can love Jesus all you want, but you can't. If you're doing a lot of sin, I guess, how can you really be worshiping him properly? Yeah, I don't know. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, and I think over the course of history, religion can become its own idol in a way. It can be something that we worship instead of the one that it points to. Um, and the temple was something that pointed to God, but a lot of times people would worship the tradition of the temple. But, I mean, if you look throughout uh, Judaism, Clark actually, he emailed me something from Rabbi Naomi this week, and she's the, the rabbi at Temple at Bethel in Eureka. And she was she was just, like, reminding in this, in this letter, she was just reminding the people, like, the prayer shawls that we wear are not worn just for the sake of, like, we're cold or something. It's to point to this reality that God is everywhere, that God is constantly moving, that God covers us under his wings. And it becomes those concrete reminders of what God is doing instead of the thing that we're worshiping. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So let's read John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. All right. So we're going to start with for God. So I just want to open it up for a minute here, and um, there's no right or wrong answer, but who is God to you? Like who? What is a name maybe that you use that you cry out to God, or a name of God that is most important in your own life, the name that you pray out most often, or uh, what kind of experience, characteristic of God most resonates with you? Um, I know there's like three different questions there, but maybe one of them kind of sits with you. Anything coming up? Yeah, Karen. Dear Lord in heaven and by my side. Mm. That's That's good. Thank you. Yeah, Haley. Heavenly Father. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, Jay. I think of uh, mystery. Mystery, okay. Mm, yeah. Compassion. Compassion. Yeah. Yahweh. Yahweh. Yeah. Yeah, David. Creator. Creator. Yeah. Creator and Daddy. Yeah. Yeah, Christina. Father, mother. Yeah. yeah. Good. Protector. Protector. Definitely. That's good. So what I think is really interesting in, in this passage is that the writer of this gospel, who we kind of looked at a little bit last week, uh, chose to intentionally use the generic term for God when writing this. He, he wrote the verse, he used the, the Greek word theos, which simply means God, or it's just the general word for gods and goddesses uh, in that time. And so I'm not entirely sure why he chose to use theos instead of for the father so loved the world that he gave his son, or the creator of the cosmos so loved the cosmos, or the, uh, the king of the universe so loved the world. I'm not sure why he used that, but I wonder if John purposefully left the name of God generic because of he, he knew how often humanity needs God to be who they need God to be. Now, stay with me here. I'm not talking about universalism. I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about how often we create God in our own image. Like if our fathers, if our dads were just like horrible disciplinarians and we kind of place that upon God and think that God is just this horrible disciplinarian. Or if, if um, I think that God's out to get me because I felt like my authority figures in my life were out to get me. I'm not creating God in my own image. I don't use the name of God to justify doing horrible things in the world because I believe that that happens again and again. I believe God is Jesus Christ, and John believes the same thing. So if you want to turn with me to John chapter 1 here, because I want you to hang with me through this, where, where I, I, I think that so often um, humanity needs God to be who they need God to be in that moment. John says, in the beginning, in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And skip down to 14. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. The word became Jesus Christ. The word was in the beginning, was with God and was God. To know an aspect of who God is, to know God's character, we only have to look so far as at Jesus. We look to we, we can see Jesus, his witness and his example. We test God's character with the character of Jesus as revealed in the Bible and by the Holy Spirit. So if I say that God is is vengeful and vindictive and these people deserve what they got because they're horrible sinners, well where do I see that with Jesus? Where do I see God revealed as through Jesus Christ to uphold my way of thinking? So we have to test every belief we have with Jesus Christ in the Bible. 
There's only one time in the Hebrew Bible when God gives humans a name to call God. And it's the name that Carissa mentioned when she prays. And it's during the story that Moses meets God uh, at a burning bush. And it's actually at Mount Sinai, which he eventually gets the law as well. But turn with me to Exodus 3. Exodus is the second book in the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus. All right. Exodus chapter 3. In this Bible, it's page 58, if anybody has this Bible. We're going to read verses, you read verses 4 to 15. So he sees that bush. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place that you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Stop there for a second. I This is just a sub-thought here, but I love that so much because I don't know if Moses had any kind of understanding of who this God was. And I think so often in our own lives, God looks at each of us and says, hold up. I am the God of your grandmother. I am the God of your grandfather, and I want you to know me like your grandmother knew me. I am the God of the generations way back. I am the God that Moses listened to and got to know me, and I want you to know me. I am the same as yesterday, today, and forever. I am the God that I am inviting you into in this very moment. The, the one that Moses bent his ear to in that moment is the same God that we talk to today. Ugh. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Thank you. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. You guys, the God we serve is concerned about our suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites. Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites have reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Remember, it's Sinai. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your father sent me to you. And they ask me, Well, what's his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is who you are to say to the this is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, 
The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Amen. Yeah. So the names in the ancient Near East, especially during this time, but even beyond this time, meant everything. A name, a name gave a person their character, and it also showed out their destiny. So the name a parent gave to a child said, this is who I think you are, and this is who I want you to become. So a name held so much meaning. It revealed a person's character. And then we see throughout scripture, oftentimes God will come about with somebody, he'll meet somebody, interact with a person, and change their name after they've had that interaction with God. Their name is changed because of that. I I had a, a very atheist friend. Like, I mean, atheist beyond atheist friend who encountered the love of Jesus through a severe car accident. I don't even know what his name was. He's never told me what his name was. But after he encountered the love of Jesus, he said, my name is now Smiles because that is who I am. That's his name because that is who he he is. It's his character as revealed through Jesus Christ. So when Moses asked God for a name, he was expecting something like the hundreds of Egyptian gods and goddesses that he was raised with. Every god and goddess had a name, and that revealed something about that god or goddess. But God doesn't give Moses a title. He doesn't give him, like, this is who you're supposed to call me like. I'm I'm like this one or I'm like that one. God gives Moses a name. I am. I am who I am. Some translations say, I will be who I will be. In the Hebrew, that word I am means I exist. In contrast to all the other Egyptian gods out there, in contrast to all the pretender gods out there, I actually exist. The name I am is two Hebrew consonants. But God tells Moses that humans must call God he is. I am who I am, but tell the Israelites, you can call me, he is. Which is the capital, if you notice in your Bible in verse 15, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, is what we have in the English. Four Hebrew consonants, and it is what we get for Yahweh. Y-H-W-H, or V-H. And I know that when we look at this, when we say he is, already we're limiting God. Because in the Hebrew language, almost every single word has a characteristic approached or attached to it. You have a masculine word and a feminine word. Yahweh has neither masculine or feminine attached to it. So when we say he is, we're already boxing God into that gender box that we like to have out there that makes us feel safe about who God is. God is neither male nor female, but encompasses both masculinity and femininity as humanity is created in the image of God. So that is really important. Every time we speak out the name of God, we are always speaking out an attribute of God that is something of truth, that is something of value, and something that is limiting all the time. And when we recognize the limitations, we get to see how vast 
and all-encompassing and totally beyond our understanding God actually is. Yahweh is this beautiful and mysterious name for our creator. It is one that the Jewish people don't even utter except one time a year. It is wrapped in mystery because it is an invitation to know. God is so gracious to humanity that, that, that he has revealed through this invitation, God extends, he re, God reveals this intimacy of relationships because names reveal character and knowing a person's name is the first step towards that relationship. One of the reasons that we wear name tags 50% of the time here, which we haven't in a while, but we really want to get that going again, is because when we hear each other's names, when we see each other and say each other's names, it reveals a desire for relationship. It reveals that we are interested in knowing the other person beyond just the, hey, good morning. Names mean so much, and God invited humanity to take the name of God and enter into a relationship. Israel has a very rich history of naming God through God's characteristics. Uh, but oftentimes, kind of what I was saying before, it was based on who they needed to, God to be for the season that they were in. What does Israel mean? It means to wrestle. Yeah, yeah. Israel means to wrestle with God. Like Israel means we are down in the dirt and we are wrestling with God. It means I am not totally comfortable with with who I am and who God is. And so I'm going to keep coming at this relationship again and again and again. I am willing to engage over and over again. Oh, I love it so much. So there's a lot of history to names. And um, I'm going to go into a quick history lesson. So if you hate history, you're welcome to take a nap. If you love history, then let's get into it. Uh, so Israel was about the size of um, Connecticut times two. So like Connecticut one, Connecticut two. That's about the size of Israel, the, the nation of Israel during this time in the ancient Near East. Uh, Israel was surrounded by other nations, much more powerful nations, and all those other nations had kings and rulers over them. And Israel was like, ah, oh, we want a king too. And God said, no, 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 I'm your king. I'm your ruler. You look to me for all your guidance. That's how this relationship works. And they're like, well, I bet we could serve you better if we had a king to look towards. And God's like, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. It's not going to happen. And they're like, no, no, we want a king full stop. And then God said, okay. So the first king of Israel is Saul. Saul does like semi-okay job, not great all the time. Uh, Next king is David. David is like the pinnacle of Israel's kingship, kinghood, that's who they look to. Not a great king either, but you know, who one of us, like which ones of us are like awesome at everything we do. So we give a lot of grace to all people. The next one is David's son, Solomon. And Solomon starts out great. He starts out on the footing of what God wants him to step into. And then he doesn't. Then he gets distracted by all the world represents and, uh, and during Solomon's reign, the people were becoming less and less satisfied with his leadership. They were disappointed in him. Half of them were like, he's God's elect. We're going to follow him anywhere we go. And the other half were like, let's start over. Let's do this again. So what happens is both kingdoms get split. We have a northern kingdom of Israel. And that is, uh, do we have any pictures of that, Paul? No? Okay. Did you, no. So there's a northern kingdom of Israel. 
about the size of Connecticut. There's a southern kingdom of Judah, which is about the size of Connecticut as well. Judah has Jerusalem within its border. And Jerusalem houses the temple of God. This is where people go to worship God, to experience uh, Yahweh in their lives. And Jeroboam is this guy who starts ruling the kingdom of the north. And Jeroboam is really worried that the people of the kingdom of the north, these Israelites, uh, ten tribes of Israel, are going to go down to Jerusalem to worship God and be in the southern kingdom and never want to leave. They'll never come back. We won't have our armies. We won't have our people. And so what Jeroboam does is he sets up two calves, golden calves, which is interesting for many reasons. He puts one up in Dan in the northern part of the kingdom, and he puts one in Bethel in the southern part of the kingdom. And he said, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. This is who you will serve and obey. You don't need to go to Jerusalem to the temple any longer. God is here. Eventually what happens is uh, the people are worshiping these gods and uh, around 722 BC, there's a superpower called the Assyrians. They go into the northern kingdom of Israel. They, they, they destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. All those people are then put into, uh, sold into slavery. They're intermarried with the Assyrians. And those later generations of the Israelites there and the Assyrians are then called the Samaritans. The Samaritans are considered half-breeds. They are considered a despised generation of people by the southern kingdom of Judah, since the southern kingdom of Judah is where the pure descendants of Abraham live. Okay, you guys are getting all glassy-eyed. It's all good, though. We're almost done here. (laughs) About 150 years later, Babylon conquers the southern kingdom of Judah, destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and the people then go into exile for 70 years. And during this time of exile, Babylon is then conquered by Persia. It's all these superpowers, all these pieces moving around. And Persia has less uh, rules than Babylon does. And they're like, you know what? Israel, I know that that we've got you here. You're you're our new conquest because we conquered Babylon. But why don't you guys, I mean, we're still ruling you. But why don't you guys go home, back to Israel, back to Judah, and maybe rebuild your capital city of Jerusalem? Maybe you're able to rebuild your temple. I mean, we still rule, but you guys can go and do those things. And so the people then go back and they rebuild Jerusalem. So why have I given you this history lesson? I I think it's really important to know where God has taken people in the past so we can know what God is doing in the present And the story of Israel is not some sort of easy, simple story. It is of hardship. It is of abandonment. It is of following other gods and rejecting the God that first loved them. I think Israel probably questioned a lot of times if God was good. They wondered where God was. They lamented the ways they had fallen out of step with God's leading. They wondered if this was their fault, <laughs> if God cared, if they had, should even have hope for what's to come in the future. They probably felt lost as a people group. And then they got to return to their land. They got to experience this communal repentance together. They started to write down during this time, 
this time of exile and return, the way that they responded in this communal repentance is they started writing down the Hebrew Bible. They took what Moses had written. They took what the prophets had written. They start retelling the oral stories and writing down the oral tradition that was told to their grandparents and their great-grandparents and passed on to them. And they wrote it down. They wrote down about God rescuing the people out of Egypt. They wrote down about the faithfulness of God while he spoke through a burning bush. They wrote down of God's laws and the laws that they had told each other and the laws that their grandparents had told them. And as they wrote through their grief, as they wrote through their repentance, and as they wrote through their hope, they began to remember the God who actually exists. The Hebrew Bible began to take shape and they added to and added to and added to the stories that were told of the God who actually exists. There's a writer by the name of Brian McLaren. Do we have that slide, Jay? No. So there's a, I'm just going to read it to you. There's an author by the name of Brian McLaren, and he wrote, As the people changed and evolved, their understanding of God changed and evolved. For example, when they were nomadic wanderers in the desert, they envisioned God as a pillar of cloud and fire, cooling them by day and warming them by night. When they were involved in conquests, God was the Lord of hosts, the commander of armies. When they were pursued by enemies, God was pictured as their hiding place in the rocks. When they became a unified kingdom, God was their ultimate king. When they returned to the land and felt more secure, more gentle images of God took center stage. God as their shepherd. When they suffered defeat, they saw God as their avenger. When they suffered injustice, God was the judge who would convict their oppressors and restore justice. When they felt abandoned and alone in a foreign land, they imagined God as a loving mother who would never forget her nursing child. The voices who reveal the characteristics of God in the Bible are the same voices who reveal the characteristics of God today. We've got priests in the Bible who would maintain the tradition and the rituals, who would tether the people back to those concrete examples of God when people came into the sanctuary and could see that the water means that we're clean and the prayer shawl means that God covers me. And this tradition and that tradition and this ritual points me back to the God who is still present and faithful. And then the prophets, they revealed the God who desires mercy and who desires justice for the marginalized and the oppressed peoples. And there were poets who wrote down in the Bible that revealed the God of emotion and intimacy. There were sages who wrote the pages of the Bible, who wrote of a God who was unafraid of our doubts and our questions. And there were storytellers who revealed the faithfulness of the God who desires relationship with God's people. When Jason and I found out that we were that infertility was part of our storyline, was part of who we, our, our story that God placed us on, God became my overcomer and a promise for motherhood, not knowing what that looked like. 
When we lost our first adoption after being his mom for a month, God was my strength and God was my crutch because I couldn't even stand up straight. When we first adopted Isaac, God was my joy. And I could finally see what God looked like as a loving parent because before that I didn't know what God as parent meant. When Jason's anxiety seemed to hold both of our heads underwater and I felt abandoned by God, the promise of God's presence was enough of a sliver of hope to get me through an incredibly hard season, even when feeling abandoned. When we went through a super dark season of our church a few years back, God became my comfort, but God also cemented in God's holiness and constant presence as our true leader, as our counselor, where I wasn't looking to another leader to guide our church. I was finally looking at God who actually guides. Yeah. The story of God as revealed in the Bible is a story of faithfulness even in the most faithless times. When we have no more faith left, God holds that faith for us. And that is the story of the Bible. That that, that God's faith in humanity, that God's commitment to creation and belief in who God made you to be, as you are, reveals a God who will meet you exactly where where you're at, will love you fully, as you are, and then invite you into a new way of seeing the world, a new perspective on how to even see what God is doing in the world. I mean, the generic God, this Theos, this generic God that John wrote of in the gospel is the same who was lifted up like Moses, lifted up that snake in the wilderness. And maybe you're in kind of a wilderness right now as well. And God is kindly and gently saying to you, my child, fix your gaze upon Jesus, because that's where true life lives. That is where true life exists. My child, fix your gaze upon the author of life. For the God who meets you in your present need so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever fixes their gaze upon him will not perish, but will have eternal life. So Jesus, we fix our gaze upon you this morning. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for good people that We're faithful in writing down the promises that have been there since the beginning of the breath of life. We thank you for letting us look into those promises, experience those promises, be renewed by those promises again. So Jesus, once again in this wilderness of life that some of us are in, in the mountaintop of joy that others are in, regardless of what our life looks like in the present moment, we fix our gaze upon you because you are the author and perfecter of life and faith. And we give you great praise for that this morning. We love you. We thank you that we get to worship you in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about ways that you can be involved with Catalyst, please visit our website at provokechange.org. Until next time, continue loving God, loving our neighbors, and loving each other.